All right, so Jeremiah, there's a picture of Jeremiah from his Facebook profile. He doesn't look very happy. He is known as the weeping prophet, and we'll find out why. But Jeremiah is the one who um, we credit with writing the book of Jeremiah. Of course, you will get scholars that disagree with that because you'll find biblical scholars that will disagree with just about anything. So uh, he was a Jewish priest. He was called to be a prophet in 627 BC, and he served for over 40 years. He was born and raised in a small town of Anathoth, which is a few miles northeast of Jerusalem. He had a very difficult time in life, and his message was rejected by the people, by and large. They did not want to hear what Jeremiah had to say at all, because he was bringing a lot of bad news. So they didn't want to hear it. As far as the date uh, that this book was written, it was actually more compiled. When I say compiled, it was probably gathered from a lot of his sermons, from a lot of his notebooks, from a lot of all that stuff. And so probably around 550 BC is where this was kind of compiled into a single kind of book. Uh, compiled from, again, notes, sermons, etc., by his scribe by the name of Baruch. And so you'll see him reference his scribe's name throughout the book of Jeremiah. As far as a genre, who knows what we mean by the word genre or genre? It's there. What style? What style? Yeah, so you might remember from our How to Study the Bible series not too long ago that the Bible, although it's one book, right, has lots of different books in it and lots of different styles, lots of different genres. And so the genre of Jeremiah is mostly prophecy, mostly things that it is the thus saith the Lord. But there's also a lot of poetry in here. There's also a lot of apocalyptic kind of judgment. There's a, a lot of imagery. There's even some uh, prophecy which we call sign acts. Anybody know what we mean by sign act prophecy? It means God will tell Jeremiah to do actually do something. Like lie on your side naked for a year in the middle of town. True story. Maybe that was Isaiah. Isaiah or Jeremiah, one of those guys, right? And, goes, and so this will be my lesson to the people of Israel. It's actually going to act these things out as a sign of the prophecies. And so we'll see some of that as well. So that's some basic info, some historical context. Um, what's going on in the world? That big yellow blob, which I didn't even fit into the whole picture, is the mighty Assyrian Empire. By this time, you might notice, I can't really zoom in that whole lot, but that, that orange little blob up there, that's Judah. That's what's left of Jerusalem or Israel. That's what's left of Israel by this time. You might be thinking, wow, that's pretty tiny. And you're right. There's the whole northern Israel that's gone, swallowed up by the big yellow blob of Assyria. And so if you know your Bibles, you know in about 7-something, 720-ish, that finally the Assyrian Empire kicked in the door of northern Israel and exiled them back to Assyria. So that was their judgment. And by this time, the kingdom, of course, was split into northern Israel and southern Israel. Southern Israel consisted mostly of Judah, Jerusalem, all of that. They were the last holdouts. And so I, I thought that was a pretty interesting picture because you get the idea of, uh, yeah, we're kind of sitting ducks here. The world has caved into Assyria all around us, and we are the only ones that are left. So Israel looks very, very vulnerable. 
But world powers by this time in the late 600s, early 500s, were starting to shift. Babylon was coming onto the scene. So the Assyrian Empire was decreasing and the Babylonian Empire was gaining a lot of ground. And so this is all where the, the historical background of where Jeremiah was doing his work, where he was prophesying. And he did it over the course of 40 years in several kings. One of the first kings, or the first king, was Josiah. Anybody remember Josiah in the Old Testament? Was he a good king or a bad king? He was what? He was a very young king. Was he like eight when he took over or something? Was he a good king or a bad king? He found the Bible. He goes into the temple and says, we should clean this place up, you know, because we haven't been worshiping God. Blows off the dust and was like, what's this thing? Oh, it's the word of God. Maybe we should pay attention to this, right? So he did a lot of reforms in Israel. But he was a good king. He was actually the last faithful good king in Judah. And there was a bunch of bad kings after that. Guys like uh, Jehoaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. Uh, Zedekiah was the last one. And so Zedekiah was the guy who has the ultimate misfortune of being in charge when the Babylonian Empire eventually does exile Jerusalem. So that's some historical context and some redemptive context. There's our man, Jeremiah, once again. We say the redemptive context. What do we, what do we mean by the redemptive context? We talk about a book having redemptive context. We talk about historical context, right? So that's its place in history. We talk about redemptive context. Yeah, it's place in redemption, right? Just like my eighth graders, they always just repeat it back to me or the opposite of what I just said. It's so profoundly true sometimes. But that's right. <laughs> the context of redemption. Exactly. Yes, that's it. But when we talk about redemption, it's the big story of the Bible. Like the Bible tells one story. It's God redeeming a sinful people back to himself. So essentially that means where is Jeremiah along the continuum of the big story of the Bible? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Well, once again, I've given you some of the answers. Jeremiah was a prophet. He was warning Israel to repent or face judgment, right? Old Testament, Israel, God had been saying for hundreds of years, repent or you will be judged. Stop worshiping idols, or you will be judged. It's going to happen. With explicit detail, he's telling them, there will be someone who will come down from the north, which is exactly where Babylon will come from, and they will destroy your city, burn it to the ground, kill lots of people, and take the rest of them back to Babylon. And he told them that time and time again. Did Israel listen? Spoiler alert. No, Israel didn't listen. Northern Israel didn't listen. And southern Israel is not going to listen either. So the book, unfortunately, ends with the exile of Judah back to Babylon. What Jeremiah had been saying all along is unfortunately going to come true. Why was Israel in so much trouble? What did they do? I already gave you some of the answers. Yeah. Practicing false gods. Why was that such a big deal? Oh, we're stealing from Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah, Sunday morning, God's law. You shall have no other gods before me. Somebody else thought this. I can't write my 
right? <laughs> violated the first commandment. Second commandment, you shall have no graven images. They pretty much violated that too. Third commandment, right? You shall honor the Sabbath. They're not doing that. Fourth commandment. Oh, that's the fifth commandment. But close. You were one commandment off. Right? Yeah, do not, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. They surely did that too. So they blew commandments one through four. And they also blew the covenant that God made with them. They did not fulfill their end of the deal to be faithful to Yahweh. And Yahweh was faithful to them. And he told them in very specific terms what would happen if they broke the covenant. And they did. And so that's why they're being judged. So yeah, so unfortunately, it is for real. So purpose, this was one note from the ESV study Bible, which I thought was helpful. Jeremiah's purpose is clear. Clearer? Well, Jeremiah and Baruch wished to leave behind a record of the tumultuous times in which they lived, God's message for those times, and God's message for the future of Israel and the nations. And so part of what they're doing is they're actually recording history, like this actually happened. You know, I actually warned them, and then... Uh, Babylon is going to come in. So its purpose is to leave behind a record. That's what the Bible is in a lot of ways. It's a written record of, of God's redemptive story. I took a stab at making a big idea for Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the consistent, clear warning of the consequences of breaking the covenant with God. To obey his law, the reality of judgment, but also the hope of a new covenant. Consistent, clear warning of consequences of breaking the covenant with God. That was to obey his law, right? The reality of judgment, but also the hope of a new covenant. Because what's woven in Jeremiah is not just, whoa, you guys are all doomed, right? It's also, there's still hope. There's still hope in the midst of this, right? All right, so the moment that I know you all have been waiting for with bated breath since we stopped doing midweek. Oh. Is our friends with their seven-minute video <laughs> overview? Justin's like, yes. <laughs> so this is a seven-minute overview of the book of Jeremiah. Now we actually have a real look at the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an Israelite priest who lived and worked in Jerusalem during the final decades of the kingdom of southern Judah. He was called as a prophet to warn Israel about the severe consequences of breaking their covenant with God through their idolatry and injustice. And he even predicted that the empire of Babylon would come as God's servant to bring this judgment on Israel by destroying Jerusalem, taking the people into exile. And sadly, his words became reality. Jeremiah lived through the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and witnessed the exile personally. Now, this book came into existence in a really interesting way. Chapter 36 tells us that after 20 years of Jeremiah's preaching in Jerusalem, God called him to collect all of his sermons and poems and essays and commit them to writing, which Jeremiah did by employing a scribe named Baruch, who wrote down and compiled all of this material into hey, a scroll. Now, Baruch also gathered lots of stories about Jeremiah. And he linked all the pieces together. And so this is why the book reads like an anthology, a collection of collections. It's all been arranged to present this prophet as a messenger of God's justice and grace. So the book begins with God calling Jeremiah to be a prophet. And he's given a dual vocation. He will be a prophet to Israel, but also to the nation. And his words will both uproot and tear down, but also plant and build up. In other words, he's going to accuse Israel and warn them of God's coming judgment, but he also has a message of hope for the future. 
Now, this opening perfectly summarizes the first large section, chapters 1 to 24. It's a collection of Jeremiah's writings from before the exile. And the core idea here is that Israel has broken the covenant with God and violated all the terms of the agreement they made that are written in the Torah. And in a number of ways, they've adopted the worship of all kinds of Canaanite gods, building idol shrines all over the land. And Jeremiah develops the metaphor of idolatry as adultery and uses the language of prostitution, promiscuity, unfaithfulness to describe how Israel has given their allegiance to other gods. Jeremiah also repeatedly accuses Israel's leaders. The priests, the kings, the other prophets have all become corrupt. They've abandoned the Torah and the covenant, which has led to a tragic result, rampant social injustice. The most vulnerable people in Israelite communities, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, were all being taken advantage of in clear violation of the laws of the Torah. And Israel's leaders didn't even seem to so a classic place where all of these ideas come together is in chapter 7. It's called Jeremiah's Temple Sermon. The Israelites are coming to worship their God in the temple, as if everything is just fine. But outside the temple, they are worshiping other gods. And some were even adopting the horrifying Canaanite practice of child sacrifice. And so Jeremiah makes his very unpopular announcement. The God of Israel is coming in judgment. He's going to destroy his own temple and punish Israel by sending an enemy from the north. This is an army that God would allow to conquer Jerusalem. And as you read on, you discover he's talking about the great empire of Babylon. And so this all leads up to a transition in chapter 25. You guys see, this, before we move on, you see, that's a really important shot. You have this, this scene where they're in church, right? And they're worshiping and they're singing their songs and everything else. But then in real life, that's the reality of how they live, right? Talk about total hypocrisy, right? Another reason why God's so off. Be. hasn't turned back to their God. And so in the first year of Babylon's new king, Nebuchadnezzar, God tells Jeremiah to announce that the Babylonian armies are headed, uh -oh. headed for Israel and all of its neighbors to conquer them and take them into exile for 70 years. He compares Babylon to a cup of wine filled to the brim with God's just anger at all of Israel's injustice and idolatry. And God will make Israel and the nations drink from this cup. Now, this chapter is key to the book's design because everything that follows is going to focus on Babylon's coming attack, first on Israel in chapters 26 to 45, and then on the other nations in chapters 46 to 51. The section about Israel first contains stories about how Jeremiah begged Israel to turn back, how he warned them right up to the last minute, but the leaders of Israel kept rejecting him. This section concludes with a large collection of stories about how Jerusalem was under siege, and eventually destroyed by Babylon, and about how Jeremiah was persecuted all through that time, and eventually kidnapped and taken against his will to Egypt by a group of Israelite rebels. Now, right here in the middle, in between all of these dark stories of disaster and judgment, is a collection of Jeremiah's messages of hope for Israel's future. So he picks up on Moses' prediction that after Israel had broken the covenant and gone into exile, see Deuteronomy 30, God would not abandon his people. Rather, he would renew his covenant with them and transform their hearts. Jeremiah develops this promise, and he says that God is going to one day inscribe the laws of the Torah, not on tablets, but rather on the hearts of his own people. He's going to heal their rebellion so that they can truly one day love and follow him fully. And so one day, Israel will return back to the land, and the Messiah from the line of David is going to come, and that's when all nations will come to recognize Israel's God as the true God. 
So these chapters are showing that despite Israel's apostasy, God is not going to let Israel's sin get the final word. Rather, his own faithfulness will bring about the fulfillment of his promises no matter what. After this, we find the large collection of poems about how God is going to use Babylon to judge the nations around Israel. So Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Edom, Ammon, Damascus, Hazor. But then, surprisingly, the longest poems are saved for last. And they're about God's coming judgment on Babylon itself. So although God used this nation to execute his justice, God doesn't endorse their violence and idolatry. And so Babylon, too, will come under the standard of God's justice. And so Jeremiah denounces this nation's pride and injustice as well. Now, Babylon is larger than life in these poems. And it reminds us of the image of Babylon all the way back from Genesis chapter 11. Babylon has become the archetypal rebellious nation. In their glorification of wealth and war, God's going to give this nation over to its own destruction. The book concludes with a story taken from the end of the book of 2 Kings. It tells about Babylon's final attack on Jerusalem, how they destroyed the city walls and burned the temple and took the people into exile. This story shows how Jeremiah's warnings of judgment from chapters 1 through 24 were fulfilled. But then the chapter ends with a short story about the captive Israelite king Jehoiakim, who's heir to the line of David. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison, and shows him favor, and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life, and that's how the book ends. So it's a little glimmer of hope. And this recalls Jeremiah's promises of hope from chapters 30 to 33. God hasn't abandoned his people or the promise of a future coming king from David's line. And so while this book contains a huge amount of warning and judgment, the final words conclude with a note of hope for the future. And that's what the book of Jeremiah is all about. You've missed those videos, haven't you? The book of the prophet... Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Seven, no, we're not doing unit seven. Okay. okay. All right, so let's dig into it a little bit. I'm just really going to briefly review everything you just heard as far as just outline form, right? So one person wisely noted that uh, Jeremiah is 52 chapters long, so we're not going to do a deep dive. But he talked about some uh, different divisions, the first 25 chapters are the writings before exile, their accusations and their warnings that Israel has broken the covenant. There's very graphic language in there, as we saw, right? Some very graphic terms, spiritual idolatry being likened to adultery, um, and how then judgment is once again imminent, right? And this is really from the beginning. Even if I just read the uh, First couple of verses of Jeremiah chapter 1, we see Jeremiah's call, right? The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. Right? So this is where the this is where the prophecy starts, right? Talking about before God formed you in the womb, he knew Jeremiah and he set him apart for this, right? In chapter 2, he gets into what is going on. This is what you should go and proclaim to Jerusalem. He says, I remember how devoted you were, how holy you were. And then he said, what wrong your fathers, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? 
He's starting to, to ramp up here, right? He's like, I brought you into the land and you ignored me, right? You rejected me. A nation changed its gods. And so he continues on. Most of the first 25 chapters are, um, again, a lot of the accusations and the warnings, right? Uh, chapters 26 through 45, we talk about judgment and hope for Israel. <clears throat> Big chunk. And then 46 to 51 is judgment and hope for the other nations. Remember in the video, he said all the other nations around, God was judging them too. Ammon and all of those other ones. Hazor. And uh, the last, of course, chapter is when exile actually happens. So the video pointed out uh, one, two, three main divisions there. And I thought that was helpful. There are other divisions. If you have a study Bible, they might break it up a little differently. But let's get into some of the main themes of this. And... Um, that's where we can get into some application for us as well and get some discussion going. So some main themes. The first one we could say is, is the call of God on our lives. And we see that right in chapter one with Jeremiah. God called him out and God had a mission for Jeremiah. Does God have a call on our lives? Yes. Yes, he does. For every single person. It might not be Jeremiah. It might not be you know, something even uh, full-time ministry or anything like that, but we still have a calling on each one of our lives and how special that call is. Um, another big theme in the book of Jeremiah is covenant infidelity, right? Again, broke the covenant, widespread sin, and the accusation and the charge is idolatry. What is idolatry? Worshiping other gods, yes, that actually aren't gods, right? So they're, they're false gods, right? If we look at, again, maybe chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 9. Therefore, I will contend with you, declares the Lord. With your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there's ever been such a thing. Has a nation ever changed its gods, even though they are not gods? Re referring to the false idols. My people have changed their glory for that which doesn't profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. It says, when my people have committed two evils, <clears throat> they have forsaken me, the fount of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what are they doing? What is that passage describing for us? Israel's unfaithfulness. Yeah, and the shock of it all, right? That little section is almost God-like, are you serious? Like, I created you. Like, I made you. I'm your God. How can you change your God? You can't do that. Like, who's ever heard of such a thing? Especially when they know. They're, they're, yeah. Like, they, they were saved by all these miracles. Yep. Yeah, they saw it with their own eyes. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yep. So there are many false prophets that are then running around. What do you think the false prophets are saying? Well, Jeremiah is saying, you're all going to burn. You're all in trouble. Judgment is coming. What do you think the false prophets are saying? You're fine. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> don't listen to him. It's all good. He's a lunatic. 
he's one of those MAGA guys or something. Just, yeah. He's crazy. Yeah. Just don't listen to him. Yeah, look at if we jump over to like chapter six and verse thirteen. From the least of the greatest of them, everyone is guilty for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, it's, it's mine, where there is no peace. And so he, that's, what the, that's what the false prophets, the priests, are running around saying, No, 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 Jeremiah is just overreacting. We're fine, right? It's all good. But God says, No, it's not good. They're saying, Peace, peace, where there is no peace. We also see total depravity. What's total depravity from a theological standpoint? Maybe some of you know that from the, the Calvinistic worldview of the, the tulip, the tea and tulip. What's total depravity? Ken's dying to answer right now. <laughs> Being separated from God. Being separated from God. Well, what's depravity? It's kind of an older word. You're depraved. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, it means you're you're full of sin, right? If we're if we're depraved, we're we're sinful, right? But total depravity doesn't necessarily mean we're as bad as we possibly could be. It means that every single part of us is affected by sin in some way. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, everything is impacted by sin in some way. Yeah. So, you're gonna say something. No, you're just agreeing? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, even our good deeds are yeah. affected by sin because they can be affected by pride and things like yeah. that. So, you know, I mean, oh, look at all the, look at the good things I just did. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Absolutely. They're like filthy rags, right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, maybe 13.23. Let's see if that's a better example here. 1323, kind of a famous verse that people might know. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or can the leopard change his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to evil. It's saying like, hey, can, a, can an Ethiopian just change the tone of his skin? No, he can't do that. Can, can a leopard change his spots? No. Likewise, you who are totally depraved, you can't just make yourself completely clean. So totally depraved. Uh, 17, I think, was the one I was looking for. One through nine. Um, Sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It's engraved in the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. And children remember their altars and their asherim, right? False gods behind beside every green tree and on the high hills, right? This is this is telling them how widespread their idolatry is in all of this. His heart, their hearts turn away from the Lord in verse 5. Um, look at verse 9, famous verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right. I talk about Jeremiah 17, 9 a lot in pastoral counseling. You probably heard me say it a lot from the pulpit. Right? Why do people do the things they do? Why do we sin? Jeremiah 17, 9. Because the heart is desperately, deceitfully sick. But, Who can but understand? Follow your heart. To follow? <laughs> yep. It's one of my favorite things to say when somebody says, follow your heart. It's like, no. no. Your heart is deceitful and sick. Don't follow your 
right? Your heart can get you in a lot of trouble. That's why we have to have our heart renewed by the word of God so that we understand. Yep. Follow your renewed heart. Absolutely. There's a whole lot, of course, of proclamation of judgment. It's coming. Jeremiah says over and over again. 9.22, here's a, here's a helpful, encouraging verse. Steve, we'll put this on a coffee mug next. <laughs> Speak, declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field. <laughs> Steve takes obscure Bible verses and puts them on coffee cups and t-shirts. And that's I want to order a, a Jeremiah 9.22, please. <laughs> like sheaves after the reaper and none shall gather them. There's an encouraging message. Guess what? There's going to be so many dead bodies, it's going to look like piles of dung around here. He's not messing around. That's why people don't want him to say these things. Right? I don't know why people don't like the Old Testament. I mean, it's flavorful. <laughs> <laughs> 12, 11, they've made it a desolation, desolate. It warns to me the whole land is made to be desolate, but no man lays it to heart. He's saying, look around you. Look at all this sin and desolation. Look at the judgment that's coming. And guess what? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll take the other guy's message. We like him a lot better. Right? We'll take the Joel Osteen message, not the, not the other message. Um, okay. But look at the patience of God. Still, we get little glimmers here. The patience of God, maybe 25, 3 will help us look at that. Look, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Amnon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken it persistently to you, but you have not listened. How do you like that? Jeremiah is telling them this not for a day, not for a week, 23 years. Oh, it's Saying the same thing over and over and over again, right? And you are not listening. But I chose the patience of God, right? He could have turned the whole country into a smoldering, smoldering pile of dust, but he waited and waited and waited and waited, and then turned it into a smoldering pile of dust. Right? What's the solution? The solution is to repent and return. He says that all the time. Jeremiah, go all the way back to chapter 3, like in verse 14. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I'm your master. Uh, he says it again in 4, verse 1. If you return, declares the Lord, to me you should return. Remove the detestable things from my presence. Right? He, he says this all throughout the book. Yeah, judgment is coming, but stop. <laughs> Turn around. Repent. Get rid of this. So it's not just God was in a bad mood and zapped Israel. Like, warn them. And if you go back to Genesis, he, he tells them the whole story about what's going to happen. You're going to be a nation. You're going to be enslaved. You're going to go back to your land, but you're going to reject me. Like, you know, it's not a surprise to anybody if they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. There's also new covenant hope. And I don't want to steal too much from where we're going to end up, but this is really where the gospel comes into play. And I'm just going to put a pause button on that because that's a big part of the application. 
But Jeremiah 31 is a big prophecy of the gospel and what will ultimately happen in the Messiah. So let's look at some of the um, let's look at some of the application that we can get into here. First one we can definitely talk about is that idolatry leaves us empty. Right? What ways does idolatry leave us empty? What is that? What do I mean by that? Your idols never gonna actually do what you want it to do. Yeah. Your idols can never satisfy you in the way that the Lord can satisfy you, right? What you're looking for can only be found in God. Famous verse that I read already and all the way back in chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And the imagery there is so powerful because, you know, picture like a clear running mountain stream that's cold and pure and good and you drink it and it's fresh. A cistern is a nasty, moldy pool of water that has animal dung in it and probably dead stuff in it and everything. And they look at the cool mountain spring and they say, nah, I've got this water over here. I'll drink that. And what happens is it says broken cisterns that can hold no water. Eventually, idolatry is going to leave us literally empty because eventually it's just going to drain us. It's going to leave us empty. It always leaks. You wonder how you kind of get to this place of, oh my gosh, how did this happen? Or how did I do this? Or how did I get so far from the Lord? Bit by bit by bit. You're drinking from the wrong source of water. And it's going to drain you. It's going to leave you empty. And so huge kind of um, idea there of idolatry leaving us empty. 28 of chapter 2 it's kind of funny. God mocks them a little bit. And he says, well, where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. He says, oh, you're having a bad time? Okay, why don't you cry out to all those little idols you made for yourself? Maybe they can help you. Oh, they can't? Oh, I'm so sorry. Right? Idolatry will leave us empty. A second application is there will be consequences for breaking God's law. Uh, chapter 2, verse 17. Have you not brought this evil upon yourself by forsaking the Lord God when he led you in the way? Right? That is the reality, right? That they brought this on themselves and they were warned time and time again. Our responsibility. What's, so what's our responsibility then? When we're, when we're confronted with the reality of our own sin, what's our responsibility? How do we react. What is Jeremiah begging them to do? To repent. 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 Turn, around. Turn around. Stop. Yeah, there should be confession. There should be contrition. What do I mean by contrition? What's that? I didn't know it was a word. Oh, okay. I'm just saying I'm sorry. Truly feeling yeah. that part. Yeah. Contrition or Contrition, you mean you're, you feel the weight of it. You understand the sorrow of it. Right? You're, you're actually authentic in your repentance. If we confess and we have contrition, that's not enough, right? It's not enough that we said we sinned. It's not enough that we feel badly that we sinned. 
what actually has to happen? What's the third part of our responsibility? It's the other part of turning around, right? We don't, we don't just stop sinning. We start doing what God has called us to. So we actually have to change, right? <coughs> if somebody sins against you, right, they confess and they're upset about it, that's great. But you got to change. You just can't keep sinning against them, right? Same thing with us and God. That's, that's what repent means. Yeah, it means to, a change in heart that leads to a change in direction. Like you actually have to change. So Even we still sin, we have to leave those old ways behind. Yeah. And we will sin, and every time we bump into sin, it's the same same thing, right? <laughs> what about sometimes do we always agree with God that, oh yeah, that's sin and we should change? Yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we what? should. Um. <laughs> um. Not I'm a witness. Yeah. Yes. Just like just like Israel. They were like, no, we're fine. We're good. Right? Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 12. They've spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He'll do nothing. No disaster will come upon us. We're not going to see sword or famine. Can you believe the audacity of that? Literally hundreds of years of saying you're sinning, you're going to get judged. And they say, I don't think so. This is Yahweh they're talking about. When have you ever known God to lie? Right? Um, therefore, the Lord of the host says in verse 14, because you've spoken this word, behold, I'm making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire will consume them. Behold, I'm bringing against you a nation from afar, a house, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. This is why Babylon is coming. This is exactly why Babylon is coming. He tells them the whole reason. Um, one more in chapter 12 I wanted to look at. Let me see if that's there. Yeah, we talked about that one already. And the whole land is a desolation, but nobody cares. Right? How about us? Do we get confronted by sin sometime and it takes us a little while to deal with it? Right? We don't think it's that big of a deal. Oh, no, I always address it right away. Especially when Barb brings it up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. my wife just called me out. Yep. <laughs> especially when, even right now, talking about my that. My daughter's here, too. Yeah, you got elbows from both sides. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, ideally, right, when we run into sin, we would be like, oh, I sinned. I don't want to do that. I'm sorry. Let me turn around and go the other way, right? Especially when maybe somebody points out sin, like a spouse in our lives or a friend. But what happens? We get our hackles up and we're like, well, me? Well, no. Here comes the list of rationalizations of why I did that. Right? I do that. Yeah, and then here comes the history. Well, I did this, but last Tuesday at 12.07 p.m., you did this, 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 and this. So therefore, I was justified in my sin. Exactly what Israel's doing. <laughs> Right? That's what we do as well. We overestimate our own goodness. And there's still going to be those consequences. Um, there was another couple ones I wanted to get to. We, we think we're better off than we are. 
right? Look at 1322. This is one of my favorite ones. And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon us? Right? What do you mean, why have these things come upon us? He's been saying it for hundreds of years. He says, it is for, he answers the own question, the, the question. It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. <laughs> it's, it's a metaphor for shame. Like, you know, your skirt is lifted up over your, it's not generally something you want to happen. I don't wear many skirts, but I could imagine <laughs> that's not something you'd want to happen. Right? It's, it's shameful. We overestimate our own goodness and think we're better off than we are. Sin is a master of rationalization in our lives. Um, one more in 16, chapter 16, verse 10. And when, when you tell the people all these words, when you tell the people all of these judgments, they will say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Like, really, guys? Well, we can't really point too many fingers at Israel because we do the same thing ourselves. Now, I know you guys saw the video too. Like, okay, we haven't sacrificed any children lately to the god Molech in fire. But yes, we still turn our backs on God. We still sin. So other applications, God is sovereign, yet we are responsible. Did you notice at the end there, the final chapters, the big chunk of chapters at the end where he was talking about the judgment on all the other nations? And one of them was Babylon. And did you see in the video? There's a lot of jokes in those videos if you kind of watch closely. The Babylon guy on the war horse had question marks going over his head because Jeremiah was pointing at him, telling him the same thing, that they were going to be judged. Little question marks over the Babylonian warrior's head in the movie was like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, your God told us to do this. Like, why would we be judged? Right? But God is sovereign, yet we are responsible. Babylon was held responsible for what they did. God didn't make them do that. This is getting into the nature that we talked a lot about with problems, of Christ problems with Christianity, about the relationship of evil and God, right? God uses the evil that was in the hearts of the Babylonians to be his judgment on Israel. But they are still responsible for their evil. Look at the cross. Same deal, right? He used the evil that was in the hearts of the Jewish Pharisees and the Romans to put Jesus on the cross. But that was part of his plan. He used evil. And yes, they're still responsible for crucifying Jesus, right? So God doesn't create evil. God's not, in that sense, responsible for evil. But what a God that he actually uses evil and harnesses it, stands behind it and does things. But, but Babylon's still responsible. Right? So yeah, so God is sovereign, but we are responsible. Any other kind of applications that maybe shoot off that point there? How else is God sovereign and we are responsible? It gets deep in here on Wednesday night. <laughs> Think about salvation, maybe. How does that work with the gospel? Well, I mean, if you're if you're sharing the gospel with someone, we don't we're not responsible for uh, we're not able to penetrate the person's heart with sharing the word. Yeah, it's that's ultimately up to God, uh, but we have a responsibility to do that. Yeah, we do. Yeah, absolutely. And sure, we can't save anybody. We can't put that into their heart. 
right? Although we want to. Yeah. What about the whole reality of, of God sending people to hell? Is that even a good statement to say? Does God send innocent people to hell? No, God, God's uh, wholly just. Yeah, he's holy and he's just, mm -hmm. right? And, and only gives people what they deserve. Yeah. And only gives us, and he would give us what we deserve if we were not forgiven by Christ's uh, mm -hmm. sacrifice on the cross. Yeah. Think about where we're in now, right? We proclaim the gospel and people still reject the gospel. So anybody who's in hell has really chosen to be there because they rejected yes, the gospel, offer. right? And they're responsible for that. Did God know they were going to do that? Well, yes, because God knows all things, but he still holds out the offer of salvation and people still reject it. Right? So they're responsible for that as well, right? God's rule, another thing in his sovereignty, right? Like those last big chunk of chapters over all the nations, God's pronouncing judgment on nations. If you skim through like the back half of 46, 47, 48, those are all judgment on Egypt, judgment on Ammon, judgment on all of these things, all these countries, judgment on Moab, judgment on the Philistines. God's sovereign over nations. He's judging whole nations. So we look that God's rule is, is global. His sovereignty is global. Um, one really cool thing in Jeremiah chapter 6 for us, encouragement and application. Jeremiah chapter 6, right when uh, he calls out the false prophets, right, who say peace, peace, where there is no peace. In verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where is the good where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls what is that telling us we have false prophets over here false teaching right people are saying no 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 everything's fine you're fine you can live your life any way that you want to live your life whatever right and what does god say the answer is he says thus says the lord what does he say the answer is in the encouragement for us in the midst of false teaching even today? Come to me. Yeah, come to you. Yep, come to God, right? What does he talk about? Ask for the ancient paths. What is that? Read scripture. Yeah, imagine that. Like actually read scripture. Actually see, actually learn who God is. Right. Yeah, read the history. Read the history. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. He says, uh, where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. That's you find rest for your souls. Right? Read scripture. Meditate in scripture. Soak in scripture. Read old dead guys. <laughs> what was their right? answer? <laughs> what was their answer? Probably not, right? What's wrong with you? <laughs> they will, we will not walk in it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we refuse. But why has all this happened to us? Yeah. It's like, oh my goodness. Uh, so kind of a related thing there, false prophecy is for real, and it's for real today. So we have to be on the lookout for it. We talked about that again, false prophets saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Um, for people like me and other elders, right, we're called to be faithful shepherds. Like in the midst of that, like we're still called to speak the truth. No matter how hard it is, right? Perseverance, even the tr in the truth of the message, even, it's even if it's rejected, 
if you were to read all of Jeremiah, you would see Jeremiah gets beaten. He gets put in the stocks. He gets kicked out. You saw he got kidnapped and, and dragged to Egypt that tried to shut him up because they didn't want to hear him talking anymore. Right? It's thrown in a cistern in 36 and 37. There's a wonderful, wonderful point where he, he brings the message to King Jehoiakim. He's like, here, I wrote this. This is the word of the Lord. Jehoiakim says, cool, thanks. Throws it in the fire. He's like, I don't want it. You know, and warns him to stop telling us bad news. And so we have to persevere in the truth of the message, even if it's rejected. Uh, maybe another one, strive to know God deeply. Like, what, is, what, are we, what are we supposed to be learning about God in the midst of this, right? Um, maybe 17, that one. 5 through 10. Look at uh, maybe 17, 7. Blessed is the man whose trust is the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. He does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves remain green. He's not anxious of the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Just trust in the Lord, like know God, like whatever else. Everything could be burning down around you, but you be anchored and rooted in the Lord. Know him well. Strive to know God deeply. And of course, we have hope for restoration from sin and this evil world. What I didn't get to in Jeremiah 31 is a prophecy of the gospel and a prophecy of the Holy Spirit. Um, look at Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declare the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, or by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, right? So he's using that adulterous language again. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And, I sh and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they all will know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. How? <laughs> How is he just going to do that? He's going to do that because the Messiah is going to come. Yeah. But you see that? It's not just going to be a law that's going to be written on stone. right? It's going to be written on their hearts. That we will know and we will love the Lord. Right, so there is hope for restoration from sin. Even in this, there's hope. And he points to that a couple other times, that there's hope for Israel, that he's not going to make a total end to them. He's still going to have hope for them. Elsewhere in Jeremiah, he talks about the righteous branch, the Messiah that will come. And that's how that's going to happen. We, like Israel, are strangers in a foreign land, how are we like strangers in a foreign land? I just talked about this today in school. Dual citizenship. What is our dual citizenship? Earth and heaven. Earth and heaven. Yeah. We are really citizens of heaven, right? God's kingdom. 
But while we're here, we're here. So what should we be doing while we're here? Just kicking back and waiting for Jesus to come? Disciples. <laughs> Making and maturing disciples of Jesus. I heard that somewhere, right? <laughs> I've heard that somewhere. What do you think he told Israel to do? Like, they, they sinned, they, uh, they got exiled, and now they're in Babylon. What do you think his orders are for them in Babylon? What do you think he wants them to be doing? Yeah. He says, actually, in uh, earlier in 29, right? Uh, 29, 4, thus says the Lord God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Guess what? Get comfy. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Take wives. Have sons and daughters. Give your daughters in marriage that they might bear sons. Multiply there. Seek the welfare of the city. What? In Babylon? We'll burn that place to the ground. This isn't our home. He says, no, seek the welfare of the city. These are our enemies. They killed all our families. No, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you next up. Pray for the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is what we're supposed to be doing here. Even when we are not at home and when we look at policies coming out of Trenton or wherever else that make us scratch our heads with what is going on in this country, right? Seek the welfare of the city. Pray for the welfare of the city, right? Build things, make families, have babies, do stuff, and bring glory to God. Get comfy and seek the welfare of the city. And of course, this leaves us right on the doorstep of the verse from Jeremiah that everybody on the planet knows. Jeremiah 29, 11, which says what? For this is the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Is this for us? Yoni's shaking her head no. Yes. Ken says yes. This is such a trick question, such a trick. <laughs> it's both. Because the answer is no and yes. For Israel in the near uh, prophecy, but it's for us because it's the character of God. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, talk about coffee cup mug or coffee cup verses. Like, there's billions of coffee cups, coffee cups with this verse on there, right? People have it tattooed on their arm, they have it in t shirts, it goes everywhere, right? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and offer, right? Everybody loves that verse, right? If we're going to take verse 11, why didn't we take verse 10? 10's not as happy. When your 70 years of exile are completed. Right. <laughs> you see what's going on there with kind of selective scripture plucking, right? If we pulled verse 11 out of context, right? That's definitely for Israel in context, as Ken said. Like, guess what? It's not going to be the end of you. Like, I'm not going to make an end of you. You you do have a future and a hope, even though you're in exile for 70 years, right? But we have to be really careful about taking verses out of context and stapling them to our lives, right? Especially when you're surrounded by context of judgment and everything else, right? So there's got to be that balance. And Ken's exactly right. Like, do we have a future and a hope? Yes, we do. In Jesus Christ, we do. But it's really bad Bible to just pull something out of here like that and say, this applies to me. It's like, okay, so so does verse 10. <laughs> 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 
we got to take it in balance here, right? Because it's everywhere. So we got to make sure that we're, we're doing that in context. So it is not directly about us, but we definitely do have a stake in the promise of God through Jesus Christ. So a little encouragement and application there to interpret scripture in a balanced way, right? It's more about salvation, right? It, it, through Jesus Christ, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the great like future and a hope. Like material well, Yeah, but that's how people use it a lot of times. Yeah, I see that word wealth there. I'm like, ah, yeah. Yeah. something great. Yeah, and so if we have a trial coming into our life, if we have something that's happening that's, that's you know, whatever, you know, we throw up the Jeremiah 29, 11 flag and say, no, this isn't supposed to be happening. Like, well, no, God's the one who just said a couple of verses ago, the ones that I sent into exile. So, yeah. God's sovereign over all things. And but he's using does, all things. Way it does apply because when bad things happen to us, yeah. you know, sometimes we're tempted to, you know, sometimes God uses bad things to happen to people. Oh, all but, the time. You know, yeah, that, that brings you into contact with somebody who needs to hear the gospel or needs something. All the time. So, yeah. Yep, all yeah. the time. Absolutely. So, I get My point in that is you can't use this as... as uh, repellent for bad things happening to us right. right god clearly is using bad things to grow and do his purposes and do his do his work right? joyful in all trials. be joyful in all trials <laughs> knowing that god uses all Some things of us need bad things to wake us up <laughs> <laughs> we kind of do don't we yeah yep yeah mm-hmm. Any other thoughts, application thoughts, questions, comments, encouraging remarks? What, what was the role of the prophet, you know, in Israel at that time? Were they welcome into the temple? Were they? I mean, I understand what happened to Jeremiah. You know, yeah, they were. All the prophets were mistreated. But like, what did they have a form? He's writing things. He's is he speaking in public? Is he? Speaking in the temple, what was his forum or format that he would address people? I think all of those things. I think writing things, encouragement letters to different parts of Israel throughout the whole kingdom. So in, in writing form, uh, we have a lot of that here in the Bible. Uh, I think definitely in the temple. right? But what we saw is that increasing politics start to happen in the temple. right? And we see it here come to full fruition in uh, Jeremiah, but also, of course, with Jesus. Right. If you have a prophet that speaks a message that the current reigning political body doesn't like, they don't want to hear it. Like only speak good things and things that align with our political agenda or else we'll declare you a false prophet. Right. When we went through <coughs> Acts well, a couple chapters ago, right, when Stephen was on his tear shortly before he got stoned. Right. Um, hit by rocks. Just <laughs> um, he said, which one of the prophets didn't you kill? Right, like so, there there was that point where they just started rejecting anybody that didn't like. Them. Sure, there were false prophets, but by and large, they were speaking for the Lord to the people. That's what the role of a prophet was: give the message of God to the people. Now, how does that work? Does the Lord speak to these people specifically, like dreams, or? Yeah, he puts the, he puts the message in their hearts. Whatever that is. And you see that in chapter 1 that Jeremiah, right, he, he, he was given this message by the Lord. Right? 
these books. But there's also, right, it's not just any message, right? It has to be verified, right? If it doesn't, it was a risky business to be a prophet because if you prophesied something and it didn't happen, guess what? You got killed. No, was he actually I wish we did that today. Like, <laughs> what? Like, was he actually sort of predicting the future in a sense? Or is it more like he was telling them something they should already know from history? Both. It's both. You know. it, it's it this time, right? It's a lot of kind of speaking the future as far as judgment. Like in, in our day, not necessarily speaking the future anymore, because the future's been it's here, right? We have it. Right. Um, so it's more speaking the word of the Lord. Uh, sometimes modern day prophecy, we think of it as enlightening the word of the Lord or applying the word of the Lord to a certain situation. Maybe if somebody's prophetically speaking into a situation, they're saying this, this is what God says pertaining this situation, right? And doing it. There's a big crossover. A lot of guys, if you take a really hard line stance, they'll say, well, prophecy is preaching. Well, I don't think I'm going to go that far, but there's a lot of prophetic in preaching because I'm explaining the word of God and bringing it to bear, right? And hopefully the Holy Spirit is applying it to our hearts. So, but at this time in redemptive history, especially in Jeremiah, it is a lot of, this is what's going to happen in the future. And it's for your mercy that I am declaring this so that you can turn. So they maybe would be like, one guy is telling them all this stuff. So in a sense, I could sort of see them being like, ah, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, think about it in today's society. You hear one person sort of telling you all this stuff. Like, yeah. You better repent. You know, you might be like, well, I don't know. Yeah, but then what, do you, what, what should we be doing then? Where should we be comparing that message to? Oh, well, yeah. right here. That's why he said, sure. return yeah. to the ancient past. Like, look it up. <laughs> I'm not saying anything out of the ordinary yeah. here. This is the same thing that every other prophet has yeah, been saying. If, everyone, like, if everyone's telling you to sin, and the one guy is telling you not to sin, yeah, what should you do? <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I mean. There's more you know, people telling you not to. Than just, to. just because a lot of people yeah. are shouting something that's wrong doesn't yeah. make it right. Absolutely. And again, that's you know, bad. I want to be the typical preacher who brings everything back to the current preaching series that they're in, but I will, um, you know, they had the law. It's like they're demolishing the first four commandments of the 10 commandments. Well, that's what I mean. Like, it's like, it's kind of like he's just sharing what they should already know. Exactly. But like, if you don't listen, this is going to happen. Yep. He's giving them the, ex the this is what's coming part. Yep. Yeah. This is the, uh, no, really part. <laughs> like <laughs> really listen God's really ticked and he has every right to be so repent before Babylon comes so yeah any other thoughts serious stuff but encouraging stuff you gotta find the nuggets of encouragement so next week we are into a very encouraging book Lamentations. <laughs> I really know how to sell this. <laughs> this, is, this is not how to get a seeker-friendly church here. All right, well, let me pray for us, and I'll return you to your Wednesday evening. God, we do thank you for your word, Lord. Um, 
it's difficult for us to put our ourselves in the situation of Israel in many, many ways. Uh, Lord, but I pray that you will help us to take these words very seriously, especially as it pertains to your law, especially as it pertains to the covenant that we ourselves have made with you through faith in Jesus Christ to be legitimate, to be disciples, to be followers of you, uh, to keep your law, not for salvation, but for growth and sanctification and protection from sin. Lord, we pray that you will help us um, as we are strangers in a strange land to be faithful and continue to be diligent here with what you've called us to do, but be faithful to you ultimately. And we thank you so much for that great eternal hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that even as we looked at very briefly some of the things of the, the new covenant that we have seen in fulfillment in Jesus Christ, that we would walk in the hope of the new covenant and that you would strengthen us with faith, that you would cause us to remember even when we do walk through those dark seasons, that you have called us even through them to accomplish your purposes in us and that you give us a future and a hope and that you strengthen us. Lord, one day we will be with you forever where sin and sickness and evil will be gone. But for now, help us as we are here in our own exile, if you will. Uh, strengthen our hearts to believe and trust in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.